pouring from the buildings now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I, I really need to leave. So the fences inform me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. the irredeemable shag along with me as always is my co-host the one-armed rob kelly how you doing buddy? <laughs> we should just get right to it this is people want to hear this is like ed sullivan when he had the beatles on and he had the beatles right at the beginning and then he had the beatles on at the end i think we should do something similar okay folks if you've seen the early promos in, in advance of this then you already know everything we have done five years of podcasting 177 episodes of this show Countless comics we've reviewed, all of it has been leading to this episode. <laughs> what has what is past is prologue, folks. This is where the show was always meant to be. In fact, in the very first episode of this show, going back five years ago, in the very first episode, within the first three minutes, we mentioned this critical character. Rob, in fact, why don't you go ahead and play the clip here? Me and my, you know, 11-year-old self went up to the convenience store and remembered had seen, I had seen some Firestorm comic books up there. Because at the time, I'd been mostly a Marvel guy. I was buying things like X-Men and Secret Wars. And I picked up Firestorm, Fury of Firestorm number 28 by Jerry Conway and Raphael Cannon and just thought this was the coolest thing. <laughs> Even though the villain was Slipknot and may not be... The <laughs> Even though the villain was Slipknot. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. A guy who fights with rope. Yep. That's <laughs> that, it, it's not even magic rope. It's just rope. <laughs> Can you believe that? Within the first three minutes of our very first episode, we were already talking about Slipknot. I'm pretty sure in minute four I mentioned that I went to the Joe Hubert school as well. <laughs> in minute five would have been your FDR impersonation. <laughs> but, yeah, folks, I mean... This is it. This Today we are going to cover the very first appearance of the Larcenist Lariat, the man himself, 
Slipknot. I can't believe we're here. He's a major motion picture star now. Uh, we we called that years ago, and uh, it's this is this is amazing. It's, I feel like it's a journey, not so much a journey completed because we've still got years worth of hating each other to go, but uh, it, it's a it's a milestone on the journey, you know. We do we do have years of hating each other left to go. We managed to pack a lot in the, the last five, <laughs> but I'm confident that we can. We can we can do even better the next five. That's right. We, we're gonna we're gonna bring our game up a bit. <laughs> By the time we get to Who's Who and Impact, we will just be strangling one another. <laughs> <laughs> well, before this love fest for Slipknot gets too much further along, we should probably take a moment to thank our sponsor, folks. This episode of the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part. By InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Uh, Rob, what you got? <laughs> well, I'm going to replug a book I just talked about a couple weeks ago, which is The Aquaman A Celebration of 75 Years hardcover because it's now out. Uh, it is officially on sale right now. It is 400 pages. Oh uh, yeah, the writers and artists are various, of course. It features reprints of all of Aqu- Aquaman series of all the different years. Got Craig Hamilton, Nick Cardi, whose birthday is today. Uh, we're recording birthday. this. Uh, Ramona Frayden, everybody. It's just, it, you know, DC's been doing these books for Superman, Batman. I think they did one for Joker, I believe. Uh, they did Wonder Woman this year. Now Aquaman gets one. So pick it up. Insect Trades price, get this. The normal price $39.99. Insect Trades is $19.99. Fifty percent off, not forty-five percent off. Fifty, so you literally get the book at half off. You cannot beat that if you love Aquaman. You want this? We want to make this book a big seller, so there's more kind of hardcover stuff like this for Aquaman in the future. So pick it up, Aquaman: A Celebration of Seventy-Five Years. So do you think it has a bigger discount just because they're trying to clear these out? Like they're not confident it's going to sell? Maybe. Yes, they've already punched the corner with that those circles. So it's. (laughs) And like only three hundred pages of them are by Cullen Bunn, right? Yeah, exa- I I will admit I don't know why there's a Colin Bunn story in there. That's uh, that that's sort of confounding. But there's lots I, of other amazing stuff. I'm telling you, that's only there because of when it was commissioned. But based on the other stuff you described last time, there are you're right. There are some amazing stories in there. I'm sorry that I'm picking on it. I there's just, a lot of stuff in there that's never been reprinted before, and you'll get to see it in beautiful color at kind of a larger size. Perfect. That's a, Again, and Aquaman deserves it. He's one of the big pillars of the DCU and all the others, all the other characters turning 75 cut books like that, so he deserves one. 20 bucks right now for a 400-page book celebrating yeah. Aquaman? Are you crazy? I mean, yeah. that's a no-brainer, guys. Yep. Yep. All right, so the next one's a no-brainer as well, but Suicide Squad, Trade Paperback Volume 2, The Nightshade Odyssey. This collects Suicide Squad number 9 through 16. Also happens to include Justice League International number 13 and Doom Patrol Suicide Squad Special. Written, the majority of it's written by John Ostringer with art by Luke McDonald. Total page count, 272 pages, full color. Rob, do you have any idea why I picked this book this week? I think I can guess. Go ahead. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to assume that uh, Slipknot is in here somewhere. His second most important appearance ever after his first appearance is in this comic right here. Uh, if you know anything about uh, Slipknot besides his movie appearance, you know that he's famous for fighting Firestorm and getting his arm blown off. And this is where it happens, folks. Suicide Squad number nine. He's on a mission. He doesn't believe that uh, Amanda Waller or Rick Flagg will actually uh, you know, blow them up, and boy, he blows up good. So uh, it normally retails for nineteen ninety nine. You can get it for forty five percent off. So you can get it for ten dollars and ninety nine cents. You can get both of these for about thirty one bucks. That's not a bad deal at all. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of comics for not a lot of money. 
And they're good comics, too. So uh, head over to InStockTrades.com for all your trade paperback needs, folks. And go up to the Contact Us button and let them know that you heard about them on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, we didn't, we didn't come right out and say that this is our monthly review episode because it's been a while since we've done one together. But it is our monthly review episode. And we're going to be talking about two issues of Aquaman. And then we'll talk about Fury of Firestorm. Number 28. Oh, so good. And then we, at the end, we're going to do your listener feedback, catching up on several episodes of that. So, Rob, you want to jump in on Aquaman? Yes, uh, I'll talk fast because I know everybody wants to get to, to Slipknot. So uh, we're <laughs> talking about uh, – we're not covering number nine, which just came out because, uh, like I said, it just came out. And I, I never had enough, enough time to sort of read it, and I want to spend a little time with it. So we're just doing number seven and eight right now. Number seven – uh, is the story is uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. I will get to that in a moment. Uh, it is by Dan Abnett, of course. The artists are Scott Eaton, Wayne Foucher, and the colorist is Gabe Eltabe. Uh, Aquaman and Mirror are back in Atlantis, dealing with the various sundry details of running a kingdom. Aquaman is, of course, most concerned with just who is trying to sabotage relations between Atlantis and the surface world, which is what we saw last issue. But a lot of other stuff is getting in the way. One of the elders, a guy named Koa, suggests that if Aquaman is to marry Mira, she undergo a series of tests to prove her worthiness. Aquaman is, of course, aghast at this and tells a stuttering Koa to get out. Aquaman then meets with Merc, everybody's favorite, who was there at the wreckage <laughs> of the Navy vessel. Merc shows him an Atlantean helmet found there, proving it was the work of one of them, except... The helmet has been retrofitted with an air-breathing apparatus, meaning the person using it could not breathe water. Dun-dun-dun! very big deal. Meanwhile, in Venice, at the uh, HQ of Nemo, Black Manta makes quick work of those who oppose his forced ascension to leader after killing the previous Fisher King. Aquaman goes to see Coram Wrath, the head of the resistance group known as the Deluge. Coram sees Aquaman as an illegitimate ruler, a half-breed, a crack of which earns him a left cross from Tula. He refuses to help Aquaman to get to the bottom of who, who is behind all this. Later, Aquaman has a discreet line of communication, a.k.a. an aquaphone, set up with Agent Irving of the FBI. He thinks that the FBI's investigation of the scavenger and who he sold his stolen Atlantean treasures to might provide some clues. Not too far away, Nemo launches its first plan, unleashing some sort of giant beast that emerges from the Atlantean seabed as it lumbers its way towards Atlantis. To be continued. Woof! So, Nick, do you want to jump in and do the next issue or talk about this one? No, let's talk about this one. Um, okay, cool. First of all, uh, just as a side thing, all these uh, issues of Aquaman have had alternate covers by Joshua Middleton. And mm-hmm. Man, they are beautiful. They are really beautiful. Uh, there's one coming up, I think, for number nine. I haven't seen it yet, but there's one of just a Mira thing. It's just, it's so beautiful. Uh, I mean, I really like Brad Walker. Brad Walker did the cover. For this issue, I love his work, but Joshua Middleton is just knocking him out of the park. I, I'm, I wish, I hope these get collected somewhere because they're, they're just cool. like when they do the trade. I hope they put them in there too because they're, they're really beautiful. Anyway, um, it's sort of funny because I have, pre- you know, as everyone knows, I do not like Atlantean, you know, uh, BS stories. I don't, I don't like Aquaman stuck in Atlantis. Every writer brings him back to Atlantis, and. In previous uh, blog posts and maybe even on the show, I have referred to those stories dismissively as they are the uneasy lies the head that wears the crown stuff. And this story oh. is literally <laughs> titled that. So I was a little like, oh, Dan's trolling me. But I, to be fair, there are no kelp farmers in this one. There is no kelp farmer. That's, that's for the big graphic novel that they're doing. Right, the original Earth One, yeah. I don't know why every writer wants to keep bringing him back to Atlantis. I just don't get it. And, and I mean, every every writer has done it. George F. Johns, 
Uh, Jeff Parker didn't do it as much, but now we've got Dan Abnett doing it. I just they, they can't keep him out of there. Uh, so that you, part. You, you, you yeah. do realize he is the king of Atlantis. It's a comic it's kind book. of his shtick. You can you know you know he doesn't have to be his shtick, but it doesn't have to be. He doesn't. He can just. This is look. Seventy five years the guy's been around. He's been king of Atlantis for like fifty of those. You don't have you don't have to do any of that stuff. You can just say you know what the stuff off panel is when he deals deals with Atlantis. You don't have to literally show it. I just I lo- I really loved. When Jeff Johns set him up at Amnesty Bay and they did that whole thing and it turned him into more of interacting with the surface world being superhero. And I, they're still keeping that, but I just, you know, I just get frustrated seeing him back at Atlantis. But that's, that's that, you know. And we'll, get, get over it. So all that said, I still enjoyed uh, this issue, of course, uh, watching the scene get pulled in all these different directions. Uh, it's it's easy that to sort of set up the deluge as just the bad guy since Quorum is so unrepentant, but Aquaman kind of knows something that's going on here, uh, something bigger is going on here. I do like that Abnet has sort of flipped the script and that typically Aquaman was always the hothead uh, and Mira was the more calm one, but here it's different. Mira is the one who's kind of like hip shoot by the hip and Aquaman is more contemplative, which I like. I, I like that's just – it's a nice change. Um, Abnet is sticking political commentary here, and it's really explicit. I mean, at one point, Quorum insults Aquaman by calling him progressive. You know, I mean, he literally calls him that. So to some, that's an insult to others. It underscores how badly stuck the deluge is in its views of the way the world is now versus the way it was. You know, the deluge is kind of wants to make Atlantis great again, come hell or high water. And so, you know, Abnet, I have, to, I have a feeling that Abnet is probably pulling some stuff from Brexit in there as well. But, I mean, the, 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 all this stuff with the deluge has had a political undercurrent. And Abnet is really underlining it with this issue. Uh, art front-wise, uh, I still miss Brad Walker. Eaton and Foucher do some nice stuff. I like their close-ups. And the art design they do for all the stuff with uh, Tula is really good. Uh, and I liked the setting up of the Aquaphone with Agent Irving. That's, you know, one of those typical comic book tropes that I wish Aquaman had more of. So I dig that. I like that a lot, that, that she's going to almost be like his Commissioner Gordon. So overall, I like the issue. Like I said, I'm still a little just hesitant about having Aquaman be in Atlantis again and sitting there in his throne and just sort of bemoaning his fate and complaining about being having to run Atlantis. But that said, I, I did like the rest of the issue pretty well. Well, going back to the uh, undercurrent, yeah, get it, undercurrent of uh, the political themes going on. Do you think there's more of that going on with Black Mana basically kicking in the door and taking over Nemo? I, mean, um, I don't. I yeah, a little bit. I mean, I I always just figure that's just the way of making Black Mana be the ultimate bad guys. That you know, like the Nemo thinks they're going to control him, and mm-hmm. of course, within two seconds, he just shows them what's what. Uh, it's sort of funny that, uh, as you pointed out, that the, the sort of second-in-command, the female, the one that breaks him out, is called Blackjack, which yeah. ha- has to be a reference to the failed Golden Age villain, Blackjack. And I sort of like that this Blackjack is no more competent than the original. There's just something about <laughs> yeah. that name that just means you're just a total feeb. So I like that. It's it's an interesting idea that in the world of villains, it's just it you lead through strength. Uh, like there's no, you know, Black Mana might be might be completely un- not ready to run this group, but because he killed the leader, everybody's kind of like, oh, okay, you know, it's just the way these guys operate. So 
that's kind of an interesting idea. And the the, the head of the Nemo head of Nemo lasts like I think like three panels. I mean, he's yeah, introduced it's, to Mana, and Mana kills him immediately. Well, it's, it's J. Jonah Jameson with a thicker mustache is what it looks like. But yeah, it's a pretty great moment though. Um, I, overall, I really enjoyed the issue. I, I like the I like Aquaman being dragged back to Atlantis on occasion. And I think that's what we're getting here with Dan Abnett. I actually, I'm, I'm fine with the way he's handled this because we've had issues where he's dealing with Washington. He's dealing with, you know, the, the, the dry dock uh, embassy they built and all that stuff. Um, why, why can't I come up with the name of it? Spindrift. Spindrift you know, where he dealt with Spindrift and he had all these other things. So him coming back to Atlantis for an issue? Fine. Yeah, no problem. Because they've already established Tula as the regent. And, she, you know, usually he's calling to check in and an issue going, hey, everything OK in Atlantis? She's like, yeah, we're dealing with it, you know, or whatever. And, but having him actually be there and be the king, I'm perfectly fine with that. I think it's appropriate because I do like that he's king of Atlantis. I don't want him to abdicate those responsibilities because then he just becomes the guy living in New Venice again. And I don't want to go back to the days of that. So I'm, I'm pleased with the way he handled this as long as it's not something that's going to go on for 10 issues. Um. Black mana, I'm I'm a little bit tired of. Like, I started thinking about this in terms of trade paperbacks, you know, because that's the way the real world works. They're going to package some number of issues together as a trade paperback. You know, they've got the Rebirth special, then they've got the first two issues of Aquaman. I don't know if they're going to package Rebirth in the first four, um, Rebirth in the first six. I don't I don't know where the breaking point's going to be. But so far, this this Black Panther, Black uh, Manta storyline's now going all the way to seven issues. It's like, okay, I'm kind of ready to wrap this one up. I don't know. Maybe I realize there's a subplot. It's the B plot brewing in the background, but it's just taking a lot of page count. I don't know. Um, then I agree totally with your, your thoughts about Mara being the hothead and Aquaman being the, the cooler head. And that's actually been this way through this whole series. I mean, you remember he went to Washington and let himself get imprisoned and yeah. she's the one who broke him out. So yeah, that's been there for a while. And then, um, at the, at the end, this giant, you know, behemoth creature that comes up out of the muck and starts walking. I was fascinated by that. I was so interested in going like, Ooh, what is this? It, it actually made me wonder if Aquaman was going to get his own like doomsday. Cause if you look at the way this guy comes up out of the muck, it's, it is almost doomsday. Like, you know, he's thoom, thoom, thoom. He's walking. He's not speaking. He, his body's covered. You can't make out what he really looks like. I would, I thought maybe this was going to be a, an underwater doomsday character. Now we'll find out in a minute. That's not exactly what it works out to, <laughs> no. but, uh, still fascinating. Yeah. So I was happy. I thought the art looked great. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I think it's a, you know, it's continuing to be a good series. I agree. I, right. I may be jumping the gun a little that, you know, one issue back in Atlantis. And I'm like, no, don't bring it back to Atlantis. And it could be that having Tula be such a major character that she will basically be running it in his stead. And if mm -hmm. that's the case, great. That's super. I'm perfectly happy with that. I love the designs on Tula, by the way, like that mask that she's got <laughs> on her. I love that. I think it's a cool-looking design. I mean, I think if you had a real person wearing it, it would look ridiculous, but that doesn't matter because you don't have to have that. I think it would be really cool. And um, art-wise, there's some really good close-ups on faces. There's a great shot of uh, Coram Wrath. It's a close-up. I don't know what page mm -hmm. it is exactly, but it's he says when he says False King, like that's a really good shot, and I like the way Tool designed so, and I like the monster. So even though I am huge fan of Brad Walker, and I want Brad Walker to be doing the book all the time, uh, you know, these guys are filling in pretty ably. It's funny. My, my next comment I was getting ready to say was Tula needs a new headpiece because I can't stand that thing. <laughs> really? Oh, I dig it. It looks uncomfortable as hell, but I like it. It definitely gives her a unique look. There's no mistaking yeah. her for someone else, which is yep. fine. Yep. Um, I did have two more comments. I'm sorry. I really I like Merc in this one. 
Um, Merck was very level-headed. He, he acted like a guy in charge of a bunch of people rather than just the hothead who hates Aquaman. So I, I, I love the way Merck has developed. I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I know you're not a fan of the character, but he so perfectly represents that Peter David era of Aquaman. I think it's wonderful. He does. That's true. And, and I noticed this some many years ago or whatever. I think there's something going on here with uh, – if you look at Koa, Elder of Law – you know, it's on mm-hmm. the, like the first page. Yeah, he's got that collar around his uh, shoulders. That is very representative of the fisherman's pattern on his headpiece. You know, the 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 yellow with the black spots like that. Mm-hmm. You can tell me I'm wrong or not. I don't know. Okay, I see. I can see a little bit of what you're talking about. And we haven't seen the fisherman yet. No. In 52 issues of Aquaman, now another seven, so we're up to 60 issues, we're up to five years, and Aquaman only has, like, three villains. I mean, truthfully, two. <laughs> it's three if you extend it to Fisherman, you know. Well, um, four, Scavenger. Okay, fine, Scavenger, fine, four. And so in five years, you know, there's they, there's one glaring omission. So I, And I remember seeing this sort of look on one of these Atlantean guys before, and I just wonder if they're, like, building to something where the fishermen will be have a connection to Atlantis because of the similar garb that people wear. Mm. Maybe I'm reading more to the art than I should. But that's where my brain goes. Possibly. Possibly. I don't know. All right. Maybe so. Fun issue. Fun yeah. issue. Uh, so, yeah, now we're going to move on to Aquaman number eight. It'll come out just uh, two weeks later. Once again, uh, the art is by uh, Scott Eaton and Wayne Foucher. Colors gave LTEB. And the writer is, of course, again, Dave. Dan Abnett. This is unstoppable, and this is part one of a new story. So I would suggest that the first trade is probably going to end at number six, because number mm-hmm. seven was kind of a one-off thing. So this is the beginning of a new story. So anyway, again, another amazing uh, alternate cover by Joshua Middleton. So yeah, it is. You can see it on the Aquaman Shrine review if you want to take a look at it. Anyway. That looks very Doomsday with the chains. Hmm. Looks very Doomsday with the chains. Yes, I agree with that. Anyway, it says we open with Mira at the Tower of Widowhood. It sounds like fun. An ancient temple run uh, by an order of less than humorous Atlantean women who plan on conducting a test to see if Mira is good enough to marry the king. Meanwhile, Aquaman is alerted to the seismic booms taking place outside the city, and he, Merc, and some of the others go to investigate. It doesn't take long before they get they spot the massive creature lumbering its way forward. Aquaman tries to communicate with the creature, which is met with a left cross, sending the Sea King flying through the water. Not only is the creature incredibly strong, but it seems to be able to heal itself instantly. After falling back, Aquaman and Tula discuss a strategy, and they bring out the big guns, literally. Atlantean craft fire plasmid cells, which only stopped the monster long enough for its real identity to be discovered. It's the old Justice League foe, the Shaggy Man. What's his name? The Shaggy Man. Yeah! That's what my mom named me after. I believe that entirely. As Aquaman (laughs) tries to stop it, uh, he is told that the monster's target isn't, in fact, Atlantis, but Amnesty Bay. And it's to be continued. Uh, yeah, now there's not a whole ton to say about this one because it's really just a big fight. I love the reveal that it's the Shaggy Man just because the Shaggy Man is an old Justice League foe. I didn't know that he's an old JLA foe in this universe. Like that's like he is because the Justice League hasn't been around that long. But I guess they've done some stories with Shaggy Man. But I I used to love that villain, and so I'm glad that we revealed that the monster is is somebody that we, we recognized. And uh, you know, I I like the bit about uh, there's this thing where. Aquaman kind of doesn't realize that Tula is as good at her job as she as she is. And so she has to sort of restate, like, kind of, I know what I'm doing. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess you do. So I like that a lot. And I like that uh, the Shaggy Man is, in fact, headed for Amnesty Bay, which means that the story is going to move out of Atlantis back to Amnesty Bay, which is where I want it to be happening. 
So look how salty. Yeah, now, exactly. I'm very happy about that. Last issue, when they they launched the Shaggy Man, they said the Shaggy Man is you know you know his target, his home. And I wonder, I, I, again, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I thought a lot about that line, his home. Are they talking about the Shaggy Man's home or Aquaman's home? Now, we know he's on path to Amnesty Bay, which indicates it's probably Aquaman's home. But is there more to it? Is there a reason why Shaggy Man might have a connection to Amnesty Bay? Is there a way to connect Shaggy Man to Aquaman's origin somehow? Which would be great because Shaggy Man, I agree, is a totally cool villain. And it would be nice to have him as sort of a, a, in Aquaman's rogues gallery rather than being a random JLA villain. Um, I think Shaggy Man's always got a great look. You know, he's he's Sasquatch, but with, with like cool bangs and a beard. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, I love him, and, and I gotta assume he came about in the seventies, probably right. Sixties. Sixties, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. See, the, the issues at JLA, I remember him from were the seventies ones, like where he's holding onto the missile and it's launching up in the air and everything. Um, because, like, I always associate Shaggy Man with the Sasquatch from Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, sure. It's kind yeah. of, so I always thought, like, you know, this, like, this was just them going after that zeitgeist kind of thing. But uh, I guess they were there long before that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I think he came around in Justice League number 45. That seems to be the number I'm thinking of. So he's been around a while. Okay. Yeah. Uh, fun, super fun issue. I love the fight with the Shaggy Man. The reveal was brilliant. I didn't see that freaking coming at all. I mean, I was totally taken by surprise. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's a nice, huge page, too. You know, it's a full-page splash, splash of him just being like, <laughs> so it's very cool. I like see, you know, he's the kind of character that he's a robot, so of course he could be underwater. So that's cool. Uh, he's a robot, right? Yes. Uh, and then um, the stuff with the widows, like, I went, I, I went back and forth. Like, at one point I was like, this is going on too long. But... I really like it, though. I really like the political pressure they're putting on Mara. I like that. Now, they said that she's supposed to be there for months. I hope that doesn't hose over a whole storyline or something. But um, I like the pressure they're putting on her and, and the nasty little remarks. Like one one of the ladies makes a harumphing noise about the king's decisions. She goes, yeah, I know what you think the king's thinking with regarding Mara, you know, stuff hmm. like that. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a very fun issue. I really liked it. It's a very strong start to a new storyline. Yeah, the, and the uh, in terms of um, sort of inspiration, the the temples of the widows is the look of that is right out of Game of Thrones. I mean, they look oh, really? exactly like yeah. Diana Rigg plays I forget her character name, but she's kind of this old uh, power broker on Game of Thrones, and the, to me, that's it's totally from that. But then that's fine. The Aquaman in Game of Thrones, there's a lot of the Venn diagram of those concepts. There's a lot of overlap, so <laughs> totally buy that. But you see her on the first page, and I just immediately was like, "That's Game of Thrones. That's completely Game of Thrones." Did Foucher, the inker, did he also ink Pelletier? Not that I am. I don't think so. It was mostly. Okay. Uh, oh shoot, I'm blanking on his name. I apologize. I've even, I've even interviewed him, but I. Okay. Uh, but no, no. Well, my, the reason I ask is I just feel like when I look at some of the faces in here. Not necessarily Aquaman and Mera, you know, like the, the, the title characters, but when I look at this, I, I feel like there's just some similarities to the way some of Pelletier's faces looked. Uh, and it's probably just me imagining it, but that's just a sense I get. Sean Parsons. That's who interviewed. Mm, yes, that's, that is correct. Yes, yes, yes. So fun, fun, fun issue. And I felt like, you know, it's I, I always kind of weigh comics I read nowadays, modern day comics, like, okay. I know it's part of a grand story arc. I know it's part of a trade. I know everyone says, no, we don't write for the trade. But let's face it, they write for the trade. Um, yes. And I say to myself, 
did, was this issue enough on its own to make me feel like I got a complete story or at least I got a complete enough segment that I feel like I got my money's worth? And I do. I feel I've been satisfied with both of these issues. I feel like there's enough plot going on and a story and character and stuff like that. I'm, I've been happy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily mind the book going back to monthly if Brad Walker could do it every month because, like I said, I really do like Brad Walker's work and I wish the book – had a consistent visual look, but I seem to be really in the minority on that opinion. So that's fine. Uh, I'm, if the book is selling well enough to keep it going biweekly, then that's great. So that's you know that's perfectly fine. I just do I just wish that Brad Walker had more of a chance to do the artwork because I really do like like his stuff and I think it's very distinctive. Well, in order for DC to duplicate the sales that they're getting from the bi-monthly book uh, as a monthly, they would have to launch a, another book instead. It would have to be Aquaman Monthly and then something else. Mm. And last time they did that was Aquaman and the others, and it didn't work. Yeah. So, I mean, really the only other title I could think of would be, you know, do something like this new book, Trinity, where Aquaman's paired with other members of the Justice League. Or oh, do man, something. I'd buy the crap out of that. I mean, imagine it would be a book like, you know, Aquaman, Green Lantern, and Flash or something like that. You know, That'd be so cool. Um, or it would be the, the obvious we've always talked about a lot would be an Aquaman and Mera book. That'd be great. Aquaman and Dolphin, you know? We could do something like that. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, does she even exist in this universe? Well, you can make her exist. It's comics. Come on. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Have you I, uh, listened to way, Michael I Bailey? I did. I did. <laughs> I did read uh, the first issue of Trinity. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, Francis Menopole. So I mean, you know, just mm-hmm. beautiful. So. He's the one doing the Aquaman graphic novel that's coming out. Um, oh, very cool. You know, actually, you know, I'm gonna. I know we're talking about Aquaman, but I'm gonna take a quick second to talk about DC and the Rebirth universe here. You know, I've I've talked about on the show quite a bit how DC and I were growing apart. You know, we were. You know, we were both finding ourselves and discovering the same people we were when we got together. And DC, it's not you. It's me. Right. I am very happy to say that I have added the three. Is it three? Yeah, I guess. Uh, three month or I guess they're bi-monthly now uh, comic books to my pull list that are DC. You know, in addition to getting Aquaman, uh, I am getting Action Comics. I am getting Superman and I am getting Titans. And uh, I, I, I put them through like a trial period. Basically, I bought like, I don't know, Six issues of Action Comics and six issues of Superman before I was willing to finally go. I really do like this again. I mean, it's I love the Superman books. You know, the Triangle Era of Superman. I was all over that stuff, and uh, I bought Superman from 1989 all the way to like I don't know 2000 or something like that. What's that? 12 years, 11 years, and um, it hurt to break up with him. And now I am so thrilled to be back together with Superman. I'm so excited about it. And Titans is, of course, The Adventures of Wally West and His Friends. And uh, that's been... Guess who writes that? Uh, who writes that? Dan Abnett. Oh, should have known. And it's been very entertaining. I'm really enjoying it. So it's like a breath of fresh... I'm like, I feel like I... I feel like I, you know... feel like you, you had some friends and you grew apart. And then you find out... You, know, you come back together, like, at a party. And it's like, you know what? You know, all these years apart, it's not... And we're really the same people we always were. So that's what it feels like. I do want to purchase you again. <laughs> and I do have a few other books that are still in audition phase. Blue Beetles in audition phase. Uh, uh, Detective Comics is in audition phase, and uh, I, I auditioned several others. They didn't make the cut, though. Not uh, Cape Carson has a cybernetic eye. I didn't. I did not audition that because I've been able to find a copy of that or Doom Patrol number one. Everywhere I go, they're sold out. So interesting. Wow. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Well, we should probably close out Aquaman. Anything yeah. else you want to say? 
I no, I think we're you know we're doing they're doing a good job. I have yeah. you know I have my little comments here and there, but for the most part, I've been in, enjoying it, and uh, you know they're clearly gearing him up for the bit. I'm eager to see what else they do by the time Justice League and uh, Aquaman movie comes out. That'll be really interesting to see where they're headed. Man, <clears throat> that will be very interesting. And I'm telling you, if they don't get the Peter David trade paperbacks in print soon, they're fools. And regardless of your feelings on it. There is money to be made oh, in them. Oh, absolutely should be collected. There's, I have no issue with that at all. It, it it deserves to be collected. It was an important era of Aquaman, whether you're a fan of it or not. And, again, it, it's what Momoa looks like. It, they can make money off this. I so. think everything should be collected. I mean, you know, I really would be hard-pressed to find any era of any DC comic ever printed where you're like, no, don't collect that. I, I feel like all of it should be available because it's impossible to find a lot of that old stuff, so... All right, well, if you want to get, uh, you know, um, Rima, the jo- well, you actually probably do want to get Rima. I would Jones. buy that, yeah, sure. I'm trying to remember my old 50-cent bin days is what I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it doesn't matter. You know what, we're just stalling here. We need to get to the marquee moment of this episode, <laughs> folks. It is time for us to talk about the Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, issue number 28. Whew. Okay, folks, this comic has a cover date of October 1984, but it was on sale on July 5th, 1984. That's right, one day after America's birthday is Slipknot's birthday. That's how he rolls, ladies and gentlemen. Cover price is 75 cents, so three shiny quarters, and here's how this cover goes down. It is art by Raphael K. Annan by himself, no inker. Uh, I think this is the first time he's done his own inking on a cover. And it shows Firestorm, who has been bound up in a rope, and he's sort of looking uh, aghast and looking upwards at a, at a glass ceiling. Oh, I wonder if there's a metaphor there. And Slipknot is standing on the uh, ceiling of the greenhouse, and he's holding the rope, and he's got sort of a, a what do you call starburst around his face, like you know, a, a, a dramatic moment. And it says, his name is Slipknot. See if you can guess why. <laughs> I think I can figure it out. You can figure it out, especially with the font Slipknot. It looks like rope. What do you think of this cover, buddy? Uh, oh, it's nice. I mean, I really like Raphael Kainen. I think he's a good anchor of his own material. Um, I like, you know, I, I'm still having a hard time understanding why Firestorm just doesn't convert the rope into anything. Because uh, it's uh, organic. It's rawhide, Rob. Uh, Duh. Okay. All right. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Don't so, worry. So uh, anyway, um, no, I think it's good. I mean, I, you know, you have once you get pa- if if you can get past the inherent silliness of the villain in question. Uh, it's a nice cover. I understood every word you said because it was in English, but I don't understand mm-hmm. strung together in that sentence. I'm right. sorry. does not compute. I think it's a dynamic cover. Even though Firestorm looks a little bit like he's just sort of floating there, um, I like it. I, Slipknot looks like he's full of action. He's very dynamic, that pose where he's leaning in and grabbing the rope and everything. And uh, <clears throat> I've said this – well, I've said this on the podcast before, and I think I we, in the clip we played earlier, this – Right here, the comic I have in my hands is the very first Firestorm comic I ever bought. Mm. Uh, can you believe it? This this is it. It was right chasing, after what? You've been chasing the dragon ever since. <laughs> well played. Well played. Uh, after watching the Super Friends cartoon, I went and bought this comic at the local Sing store, which was a little convenience store. And, uh, man, I... This cover, I must have stared at this thing for hours and hours and hours and hours. <laughs> it's like a Yes album cover. <laughs> it, well, it's I just love it so much. I mean, I know. I wonder if I can see the lines, the impressions in the page. I know I traced this image of Firestorm before. Um, <laughs> dude, shut up. <laughs> 
I'm sure you did lots of goofy stuff for Aquaman. I started. I started to laugh before you finished the sentence because I thought you were you were tracing Slipknot. I'm like, that's just the saddest thing I've oh. heard in my life. You need to quit badmouthing Slipknot. Slipknot made this network what it is today, sir. <laughs> Which doesn't say a lot for us, but okay, let's get into it. The issue, okay, well, okay, one more thing. Okay, Rafael Cannon inking himself. He normally has Giordano or someone inking himself. He did a fantastic job inking this cover. I think it looks stellar. So, all right. Uh, the story inside is called The End of His Rope. Uh, plot and editing by Jerry Conway. Dialogue by Joey Cavallari. Pencils by Rafael Cannon, inks two different inkers, Pablo Marcos and Rodin Rodriguez, letters John Costanza, and colorist Nancy Houlihan. Now, the big difference here, folks, is Jerry Conway, the man who created, co-created Firestorm, he only plotted and edited this issue. Someone else did the dialogue. That's new. That's not normal for Firestorm. And the the best reason I can determine for what's going on there, too, because even in the letters page, he got someone else to do the letters for him instead of himself is that Jerry needed the time off right at this point to write Justice League of America Annual Number 2, which would come out two weeks after this comic. So, and Rob, why is Justice League uh, Annual Number 2 important? Well, that's the one where Aquaman decided to, um, well, ruin the Justice League, pretty much. He did not ruin the Justice League. He <laughs> transformed the Justice Well, he disbanded the Justice League and built a new one that in, in its own unique way is kind of better. Okay. So Jerry needed the extra time to write the annual and to plan out the launch of Justice League Detroit. So he stepped back from the dialoguing duties for a couple issues. That's my my guess here. So, uh, and that's that's important. We'll talk about some of that. So, all right, this comic is 23 pages. And can, within it contains roughly about seven distinct scenes. I don't have a 10,000 foot view of this story. Uh, it's just a, a bad guy trying to capture someone. That's that's what the 10,000 foot view, I guess, is. But uh, the scene open or the the, ser the issue opens in space. We're in orbit above the Earth, where we find a mysterious spherical satellite. Inside, we're introduced to this sexy blonde who's decked out in a form-fitting purple jumpsuit, and her name is wait for it, Lila. And the crowd goes ooh. She's an assistant for an unseen man who's known only as the Monitor. Again, ooh, people at home. That's right, just got interested. Now, apparently the Monitor is a power broker dealing in superhuman mercenaries. Firestorm's old foe, the 2000 Committee, has contacted the Monitor to hire someone to recapture Firehawk for them. Now, the 2000 Committee representative there having the discussion is Clarissa Clemens, you may recall, is Professor Stein's ex-wife, whom we affectionately call the lilac-tinted whore. Now, the Monitor suggests uh, a particular merchant. you called her that? I think the whole world calls her that. Remember, this is the woman who, when she tried to get Martin Stein to do her bidding and couldn't make it work, she tried to seduce Ronnie. Okay? She's trouble. And she's working for the bad guys. So, anyway, uh, the monitor suggests a particular mercenary and, well, then makes a not-so-subtle binding joke. The deal is sealed, and the monitor is confident that this contract will guarantee a steady stream of future clients, and we close on the maniacal laughter of the monitor. <clears throat> which really proves that DC had no idea what they were doing in the monitor six months prior to crisis. Then uh, the scene changes. We are at a high school basketball game, and we find ourselves there. That specifically, it's Bradley High versus Malloy High. In the final moments of the game, our hero, Ronnie Raymond, manages to tie up the game with one second on the clock, and thanks to a last-second foul from the opposing team, Ronnie gets to do a free-throw shot. Now, uh, Rob, I realize none of these words probably mean anything to you. It's okay. Uh, there's one second on the clock. 
all the pressures on Ronnie, and swoosh, he makes it. Bradley High wins the game. Ronnie is carried out on the shoulders of his teammates, while Ronnie's girlfriend, Doreen Day, sadly feels ignored as she leaves alone. I'm shedding a tear for her. Not really. Ronnie hits the showers after the game when suddenly Professor Stein initiates the change to Firestorm. Firestorm appears downtown at Concordance Research, where Martin Stein works and where he initiated the change from. Ronnie laments that when they split up, uh, when they split the Firestorm form, he's going to be butt naked since he was in the shower when they merged. Turns out that Lorraine Riley, who is secretly Firehawk, one of our love interests in this series, is in trouble. She's called the professor asking for help, so Firestorm flies his way over across downtown towards the Riley home. Along the way, Firestorm uses his atomic restructuring powers to prevent an idiot taxi driver from causing a major traffic accident. And then he dumps the tra- uh, taxi driver several stories underground on the subway rails. It's kind of a funny scene. Then Firestorm arrives at the Riley townhouse and meets up with Lorraine in an, an enormous greenhouse. I mean, this greenhouse is insanely huge. And uh, it, it's, it's almost as tall as her house. Anyway, it uh, turns out that Lorraine, Lorraine called Firestorm because her father has gone missing again. Firestorm comforts Lorraine. Well, the, and that leads to some smoochy smoochy, which gets interrupted by... Wait for it. That's right, folks. The most important moment in all of DC Comics from the 1980s. The arrival of Slipknot. Action number one. Showcase number four. Firestorm number 20. It's absolutely... You've got it. In fact, my next line is... I mean, that that sums it up. Forget Crisis on Infinite Earths. Forget Alan Moore's Watchmen. Forget Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Forget John Byrne's Man of Steel. Forget Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. Forget Sonic Disruptors. This is the single most important thing that came out of the 80s right here. We're talking about the introduction of the single most influential character in DC history, the arrival of Slipknot. Woof. Okay. So while Firestorm and Lorraine are sucking face, Slipknot somehow manages to loop a noose around Firestorm's neck without breaking up the kiss. That's just how good he is. Slipknot pulls the noose, dragging Firestorm up towards the greenhouse. Uh, the roof of the greenhouse. Firestorm is struggling because the, his atomic restructuring powers have no effect on the rope. In fact, he's getting feedback. Because, you know, after all, Firestorm's powers can't affect anything organic. And these ropes are made of rawhide, right? So <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah, let's, put a little, let's put a pin in that one, folks, and we'll come back to it. Um, Firestorm gets free of the noose, and he and Slipknot battle their way across downtown New York. And the battles are depicted with some, quite frankly, stunning visuals of Slipknot swinging through the city and leaping around. Seriously impressive stuff. So while Firestorm and Slipknot, the greatest supervillain ever invented, battle across the city, it turns out that Lorraine is in danger back at the Riley townhouse. She gets caught in one of Slipknot's traps and trips and knocks unconscious just before she can transform into Firehawk. And it turns out that Slipknot was distracting Firestorm all this time and leading him away from the Riley townhouse because waiting there was Clarissa Clemens, the lilac-tinted whore, and she, where she had a gaggle of 2,000 committee mooks ready to grab Lorraine. Oh, noes. So after uh, more rope-related hijinks, Firestorm eventually gets to the point where he has had enough of Slipknot, the larcenous lariat. Then Man of Steel slams the 2,000 committee goons that are holding Lorraine. How he ended up connected with them, I'm not really clear, because he was being taken across town, but whatever. Firestorm grabs Slipknot and flies directly at a wall. Using his phasing powers, Firestorm goes immaterial at the last moment before he hits the wall. But unfortunately, Slipknot, the character find of 1984, does not go immaterial. Slipknot slams into the building at this at speed and knocking him out. Lorraine awakes to find Firestorm as rescued her, and we get some more smoochy smoochy. In the final scenes, the Monitor is seriously ticked off about the potential business 
because he's just lost. And instead of a next issue box, we get this little tiny line on the bottom that says, but what fate has befallen Lorraine's father? The end? Question mark? Never! And that is the end of, as you said, a comic that is clearly as important as Showcase number 4, Detective Comics number 27, Action Comics number 1, or The Incredible Hulk 181. So, I need a cigarette. (laughs) Um, We are going to talk about Slipknot and the Rope, but besides that, what do you think of the issue? Well, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I do have some some random comments here. Uh, First of all, the uh, splash page of the basketball game. Uh, yep. That's a lot of people at that basketball game. Hey, for, for a high school basketball game, that's a. I mean, I know high school basketball is really big, but I didn't realize they had. Th- I didn't notice that they have three rows. Three, three rows. I mean, this is like <laughs> stadium. I mean, wow. These, these it is guys, New York. I mean, a lot these of people guys really pack them in. But okay, so there's that. Um, no, no, no. Uh, visually, uh, is the stuff I kind of wanted to talk about the most because there is. I mean, I mentioned before I like Raphael Kanan's work. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does some interesting things here, some interesting close-ups that I hadn't seen him really do before. Page eight, the top panel, that really close-up shot of Firestorm as he's in the foreground with the uh, ambulance in the background. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a really interesting shot. He really hadn't done stuff like that before. Mm. Um, I like the way um, the uh, the panel of them, of the Firestorm and, uh, and Lorraine getting together. Like, that's well done. Like, the close-up of them in silhouette. I think that's like uh, that's, the smoochy smoochy. Yeah, that's, I'm a grown man. I don't refer to it like that. That's, oh, uh, that's really? Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm doing this wrong. Yeah, that's well. Uh, we have to talk to Mr. Shag for that. So, uh, <laughs> so that's really well done. I like the introduction. I genuinely like the introduction of Slipknot. Like, I think it's a well done thing. I almost think that it might have been better if he had not been on the cover. I know that putting him on the cover was just a sales gimmick. I understand, but I think that uh, <laughs> I think he. <laughs> The introduction, the introduction was really good. I liked that. That it's it's, it's like just Wolverine. They put him on the cover of everything. Exactly. Yeah. Like oh, Batman again. Um, but I, I liked that in the middle of the romance scene, the rope just comes down and Firestone gets pulled out of the frame, and then we see Slipknot. Like I think it's a really good introduction. Um, How the hell did that rope get around his neck while their lips were connected? He, well, he's good. Slipknot. He's, he's the. He's the. Whatever. I can't think of uh, the alliteration. Something of lariat. Um, I I, lariat. Yeah, page six. Well, I'm trying to think of like skill sets. Sixteen okay. and page uh, sixteen. The mm-hmm. the all black panel with Slipknot Ooh. coming yes. out of the shadows. He's this close to looking cool. Uh, so I, I like that. Uh, well, okay. Now that panel, I, I had that one noted as well. It's um, it's a little bit of a cheat. I mean, not in a bad way, but it, it's he's reusing uh, Raphael's reusing a trick he used on the covered issue twenty six, where he had right. Black Bison jumping down at Firestorm. The only difference here is though that he's using the shadows to the advantage of the of the inks here right. to make slip not only be highlighted in the oranges. So it, it looks great though. It's a really cool, effective panel. Yeah. Hey, if it works, it works. I like page twenty. All the 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 the, uh, the grid panels of Firestorm. Like the the middle grid is Firestorm coming right at the camera, and then the bottom grid is Slipknot as he sees that he's about to be nailed by Firestorm, like right in the breadbasket. So I dig that. So I, I've always been very complimentary to Ken, Ken, Raphael Kenyon's work. I really like it, but I think he really kind of this is one of his best issues. I think the storytelling is really quite interesting and different, and uh, I think it's a it's a good job. 
I agree. I actually had a note on here, uh, sort of similarly that you know we've really watched him come into his own with this series. When he first started, just about ten issues ago, he was a rookie artist. You know, he was a very good rookie artist, but he was still a rookie. And by this point, he's really become an exceptional storyteller. Uh, his panel design. He, he, now, Slipknot, you can make fun of him or not. It is a really unique, okay. interesting costume design. <laughs> it is a really unique, interesting costume design with giant flared um, you know, uh, sleeves, the cutouts in the ribs. You know, I love the noose design because the noose design goes along his right arm, comes up over his head, and the actual noose itself becomes the open part of his mouth. I mean, it's, it's very, very interesting the way he does all that. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the pacing, all of it. I think he's done a fantastic job. You've named out some panels that I thought were great. I love uh, on page 13 and 15, there's a lot of different shots of Slipknot swinging. Um, there's lots of shots of Slipknot um, uh, leaping. Between the leaping and the swinging. <laughs> what? Why are you laughing at me? That it's just, you know, always makes a good villain that he's a good leaper. <laughs> that's what, that's I, what I, makes Batrock one of the most every, fierce hey, villains of the Marvel Universe. Both Slipknot and Batrock movie stars. Uh, on page on page 15, there are two panels that I absolutely love. The one where Slipknot is leaping away from a brick chimney that's exploding. The only downside of that, he's got like an ankle backwards that doesn't make sense. But I love where he's got his arms thrown back, you know, the middle panel where he's just like leaping. And then at the bottom where he's swinging on a fire escape. Like that was in a role-playing module. And I just absolutely love seeing that image every time I see it. It's just really strong. It makes me very happy. I do like the way Slipknot uh, mocks Firestorm. He calls him Toaster Top there. I didn't even notice that. I the like la- that. The last, <laughs> the last panel. He does a yeah, very, yeah. very Spider-Man. Bring, bring the roasted marshmallows, yeah. Um, I also like the way Firestorm dispatched Slipknot at the end where he went immaterial and slammed him into the wall. I was like, man, he should do that with every foe. That's awesome. That's really cool. Now... <sighs> We probably need to talk about the elephant in the room here, <laughs> which is Slipknot himself and his ropes. This <laughs> is redunculous, okay? Um, now, I, I, I want to chalk this up to say that Jerry Conway did not dialogue this issue. Remember, he just did the plot in the editing. And so uh, me wanting to protect Mr. Conway, I kind of want to lay this at the feet of Joey Cavallari. But that rope... It is not organic. I mean, sure, it started off life as organic, but Rawhide is not alive anymore. If you follow the same logic that Firestorm cannot manipulate a Rawhide rope because it started off as something living, then he can't affect wood. He can't affect anything like cotton clothing. He can't affect paper. And that's just not the case. Do you have nothing on that? No. <laughs> I, I mean, th- look, I, look I, don't think, I don't think Slipknot is inherently a ridiculous villain. He just should not be taking on Firestorm, as we've yes. talked about. He would work for Green Lantern. Uh, Green Lantern. Good Lord. Green Arrow. <laughs> maybe like Dr. Manhattan, why don't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's taking on the Legion. Uh, no, I mean, he would be a good villain for Green Arrow. Maybe Batman, if you wanted to give the Joker a month off and you wanted Batman just to punch somebody for 20 pages. But uh, <laughs> he needs to take on an Earthbound yeah, you know, villain, not fire, hero, not Firestorm. That's all. Daredevil would be somebody he would fight. You know, Daredevil. Yeah, Daredevil, which, well, right? Realize, yeah. but now I think I think Frank was the first person that ever suggested that uh, Green Arrow as a first Slipknot, which would have been a great pairing. He absolutely would have been. So it's it's a shame that the character's a miss here, but it's just now there's other things too. Let's just pretend that Firestorm couldn't affect the rope for some reason. You know, maybe he threaded it with. Vines that were he had just cut 
something, anything, whatever. <laughs> Firestorm could still blast it. He blasts people all the. He has a you know an energy blast that does damage. He blasts people all the time, so there's no reason he couldn't have just blasted it. Or he could have just freaking gone immaterial, which is what he does at the end of the issue to get out of the noose. So there's so many things wrong with that. But I I love Slipknot so much, and he's so cool that you know he obviously was able to overcome all these things with Firestorm. So. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Now, the Monitor. Okay, so this is the sixth appearance of the Monitor ever. And it's six months before Crisis number one. Clearly, at this point, and I've read this before, that DC had no idea what they were going to do with the Monitor. They didn't have a clue, which is why here he's a power broker, maniacal laughter, you know, helping supervillains. And then later on, they retconned something about he was gauging people. <laughs> I don't whatever. Sure. And they really did dry Lila smoking hot here. And I don't care if I'm being sexist. I mean, wow. Just attention getting and i love lots of little scenes like the tension of the basketball game when ronnie's got to make the winning point you know and the stress on him i thought that was a great way to incorporate the teenage angst issues that come so well with firestorm without it being all relationship melodrama you know that i i really like that and uh you know I, this is just me being a dork but i just i love it when firestorm when ronnie or professor get yanked out of an awkward situation to become firestorm and then they know that they're just Screwed whenever they few, you know fission because you know like again the shower is hilarious because Ronnie's gonna be covered in soap bubbles whenever they uh, fission that whole, cracks me up. The taxi cab joke it was okay, um, but I felt like maybe they just they were uh, they had to pad it for a couple more pages or somebody said you know what you need another action beat here in the middle and so they had to come up with something for him to do because the, this the taxi cab thing just felt kind of really unnecessary. But and then I like Firestorm and Lorraine as a couple. Uh, I like them quite a bit and. For one of the first times, I almost felt sorry for Doreen, you know? Mm-hmm. Almost. Not quite. I still remember what happens later down the line, so I haven't forgiven her for that. So, good comic? Yeah. Bad comic? Eh, oh, comic? Good, good comic. Oh, yeah, I, one other thing I would have mentioned art-wise, page 7, the big splash of Firestorm in front of that building. That's mm-hmm. Raphael Kainan is showing off a bit by the sure. staggering architecture. He, all the detail he put into the windows and the sconces. And oh, the, wow, the yeah. Rings. He really went nuts on that. I... I really commend anybody that spends the time doing that because I've tried to do stuff like that and I just give up because I'm lazy. So I'm sure the anchors really appreciated it. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I like on page 10 when Firestorm's just coming in for a landing to see Lorraine. I don't know. There's something about that panel where he's just flying in. I I, I dig that. Um, That is a huge greenhouse, dude. I mean, it it looks like it's taller than the house. I mean, that's just crazy. (laughs) So, all right. I think that's all we've got on this issue. Um, I think if you rank it in the scheme of things, it's going to be maybe Showcase number four, then Firestorm 28, then Detective Comics 27 and Action Comics number one. That seems to be probably the way that would shake out, I think, for most people. I mean, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, we're going to take a break uh, and we're going to sing a couple songs in celebration of our great icon of Slipknot. And when we come back, we're going to cover your listener feedback. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team. Operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit, 
Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the league through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. All right, folks, we're back from break, and now it's time for... Listeners Feedback! And we're back. Now, a couple of things that we probably should have mentioned at the top of the show... One thing I realized that we definitely forgot to mention was we haven't done reviews of Fury of Firestorm in six months because we've been doing Legends of Tomorrow. And now that that's over, we're back to the monthly reviews of the classic Firestorm issues. Really should explain that at the top of the show. Terribly sorry. But if you want to see panels from these comics, from the Aquaman comics, or from the much-lauded Firestorm number 28, I mean, I'm sure most of you have it memorized or have you know the reproductions that came in the Sunday papers with USA Today. <laughs> um, but They have it bound, you know. Exactly. Uh, but you can uh, you can see some of those panels from these pages uh, over at our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and go over to the Shows tab and find the Firestorm and Aquaman show, which is inappropriately named Aquaman and Firestorm. But anyway, uh, and there you will find a post called the Gallery Post, and there will be images from that issue. Now, I have one of the recommendation, folks. This comic has not been collected anywhere. You cannot buy it in a trade paperback because it's just too special. But what you can do is you can head over to Comicsology, and I could not say this six months ago when we were doing those other comics because we hadn't got you know Comicsology hadn't done it yet. But issue twenty eight can be purchased on Comicsology right now. I think it's a dollar ninety nine, and let me tell you, it is so fun to read these comics in panel view, oh, or guided view as they call it. 
oh my gosh, just you really get a chance to really study what Yafiel's done. You get a close up, and and it makes you, it forces you to look at panels you never would have spent as much time looking at, and you learn to appreciate the art that much more. So definitely check out it on Comicsology, the guided view. It is so so worth it. All right. We're going to go ahead and jump into your feedback here. We're going to be covering uh, your feedback from the last three review episodes. So that's going to be, uh, what, three different issues, I guess? Um, I don't remember the episode numbers, but it's going to cover the, the last three review issues. And we're also going to hit your iTunes reviews. We did not collect the social media comments this time, so Facebook, Twitter, and all that, simply because uh, we're covering three months' worth of episodes, and there's so much feedback to do. We just... We've got to get through this. Sorry, folks, on social media. Please keep at it. Use the hashtag PoundFWPodcasts. We absolutely want you to keep that up. But for right now, we're going to focus in on the comments on the website and emails and iTunes reviews. So with that, Rob, um, you want to take us – well, before we do that, we should talk about how important the iTunes reviews are. We sincerely appreciate every single iTunes review. In fact, we read the whole review as our way of saying thank you. And our old – uh, Fire and Water podcast feed, the one that has all of our shows on it, has over a hundred reviews. But since we've launched this newer feed of just the Aquaman and Firestorm show, we're sitting at about 28 reviews. So any additional reviews you would like to give us, we would sincerely appreciate. It does help raise the profile of the show and helps people find us. Rob? Absolutely. First up is Derek Burke. He says, one of the best comic podcasts. It's always a joy to listen to Rob and Shag. Whether they're discussing a recent issue or something from the past, their geeky passion is a weekly comfort. Thanks for the quality programming. Thank you, Derek. Oh, very kind. Then we got a nice review on iTunes from Michael Bailey from Views in the Law Box, from Crisis to Crisis, Super, the Superman homepage, and he's appeared as a guest on this show a few times. He writes, one of my favorite podcasts. The fact that these guys have gotten as much mileage out of talking about Firestorm and Aquaman is not surprising at all. The hosts are engaging and have a great, playful rapport. I don't know that he gets us. Anyway, uh, they have He's a great talk about play- the guest episodes that I did with That's people. probably what it is. Okay. Anyway, great playful rapport that makes you think that they hate each other, but at the same time, you know these guys are friends. I, I thought Mike was smarter than this. <laughs> We're anyway. fooling them. To be fair, I was a fan of both Aquaman and Firestorm before listening to the show, but hearing two experts talk about them makes me appreciate them even more. It also has one of the catchiest ending themes ever. Listen to the show. You won't be disappointed. Awesome. Thank you. And yes, that catchy end theme by uh, Daniel Cynical Adams and Ashton Burge of the Bad Man Pajamas is awesome. So good. Yes, we, we both agree on that. Absolutely. Uh, we got another iTunes review from Noah Abbey. Uh, his is titled, No One Does It Better. I like to say it's Nobody Does It Better. So if you listen to this review to the tune of Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better from uh, This Buy You Love Me, I think you'll enjoy this a little more. Anyway, he says, uh, this is my absolute favorite podcast, and through the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I've come to listen to quite a number of them. Aquaman is my favorite comic book character. Good job, Noah. And while I had a passing familiarity with that guy whose head is on fire, this show... He's talking about Richard Pryor. This show made me much more interested in Firestorm, the nuclear man. Since listening to this podcast, I have not only converted my brother to become a nuclear sub, but we've managed to amass every single issue of Firestorm to date to pair with my Aquaman collection. If only I could find those 60s issues. I've only started listening to this show in the past year or so, but when I first discovered this podcast, I plowed through years of episodes in a few short weeks. Gotta love that double speed. Co-host Shag speaks at Finding Your Comic Book Joy, and I have to say, the Fire and Water Podcast Network is mine. That's a great review. Oh. Thank you, Noah. Really appreciate that. I like that. to know what we sound nope. like at double speed. Um, I listen to things at that speed, so I can understand. <laughs> Thankfully, it means I have to spend less time listening to you. But then we got a review from someone called Huh Kuh, and he wrote water. 
pretty cool. So, hey, man, <laughs> thanks. We appreciate that. Straight to the point. He's a man of few words. Uh, then we got a nice review from John Tipton, who wrote greatest podcast ever about Firestorm and Aquaman. Because I admit to not being much of a fan of either of these characters, but the hosts are so much fun to listen to, it doesn't even matter. They could be discussing the finer points of updating your resume, and I'd be enthralled. So until Mara dyes her hair blonde, make mine F-A-W-P. Just fire and water podcast. Awesome. Thank you, John. We really appreciate that. And that concludes our iTunes reviews. Please, folks, again, please go out to iTunes and give us a review. It will, we will sincerely appreciate it. Now, the first set of comments we're going to cover come from Fire and Water Podcast, episode number 167. That's where we covered Aquaman number 52 and Aquaman Rebirth and Legends of Tomorrow number three and four. God, Aquaman 52 seems so long ago. It does. It's it's like June. It's just because what happened was we did these further, we did the subsequent review episodes and we had so little time. We just, we couldn't do the feedback. So yeah. Yeah, Jeez. Uh, We got one from Jose Rivera. Uh, I love the previous episode with Dan Abnett. And because of that, I picked up Aquaman rebirth. Number one, it's one of the few rebirth one shots I liked because overall, these are just mission statement, the comic book. But I like that Adnet made this issue so accessible that I never felt lost. The Deluge is an interesting idea, and I like that we're getting a different we're getting a different Atlantean cultures. The diner scene did bring me back to the Jeff Johns issues, but I love the interaction between Arthur and Mira. My only gripe, Black Manta. I know we have to have a big <laughs> moment at the end, but I would prefer it if it was some someone new and this was their introduction. I think I'm gonna give this series a try. I loved your coverage of the issue and can't wait to hear more. Awesome. Then we heard from Ryan Daly, who's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's uh, he's the host of the Wrapping Up Secret Origins podcast, The Power of Fishnets, Give Me Those Star Wars, and it's the upcoming It's Midnight, the podcasting hour. He writes, so far I've read all of the Rebirth, spe- Rebirth specials. Aquaman is one of the best, along with Green Arrow. I haven't read Dan Abnett's previous Aquaman issues, but the Rebirth special was so strong it inspired me to purchase all of Jeff Parker's run on Comixology's 99 cent sale. Dude, such a good choice. Jeff Parker, he is like one of my absolute favorite writers right now. I am so into his stuff. He goes on to say, as for the debate as to whether Aquaman should eat seafood, wow, that's incredibly geeky even for an Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. (laughs) We like to push the boundaries of... Yes, and, and to be fair, Ryan then goes into four very specific points to also argue this with us, so... yes. Uh, yeah, I suggest you read all that. Uh, it, it, it reads better in the original Klingon. Anyway, we got uh, a message from uh, we got a message from Paul Hicks waiting for the Doom podcast. He says, uh, "Hey, Ra- <laughs> it was just like he's right here. So <laughs> bad, so bad. <laughs> hey, Ron, thanks for the great idea of me teaming up with Doug Javisha to talk Doom Patrol. I had a great idea for you. You could do a podcast about movies. You could have different guests on each episode." <laughs> I have to give myself credit. That was a dumb thing that I said, and I left it in. Because, yeah. you know, I could have taken it right out and nobody would have known the difference. But I left it in because I, I, I decided to be self-deprecating. So I, I feel I deserve credit for that. And I appreciate you doing that because what the folks at home don't know is that about every episode, there's about three different scenes that get cut of me going, hey, Rob, do you know about this? And Rob goes, no, what, huh? What? And there's a whole fumbling around for a while. And then that whole thing just goes and is on the editing, <laughs> cutting room floor. And I'm like, what? what? where did all this interesting content I had go? Uh, Rob's embarrassed. It's true. It's absolutely true. Anyway, uh, we got a message from our pal Andrew does the Supergirl blog, and he's on the Legion of Super Bloggers. He says, I will admit I haven't read Aquaman or the Aquaman Rebirth books. The discussions of the last few issues and the attached sample pages do have me pretty intrigued. Looks like this week is a late week on my pull list, so I'll grab Rebirth and see how it goes. If Aquaman is sent in Massachusetts, it means I'll be his, I'll be his neighbor. <laughs> so did that ever shake out? 
did we ever find out? Because like it said, Spinder Station think so. was in Maine, and then it said it was in Massachusetts. Yeah, no, I don't think we've gotten. I don't think we've like gone back to it yet. So I don't think we know. So I hope Spinder Station's not gone. Because remember, in the opening issues, they had to shut it down because right. of the murders. Right, because of the explosion and stuff, yeah. No, I, I yeah, I, I hope, yeah, I hope that's not the case. So. Then we heard from our buddy Chris Franklin, from uh, also part of our network and the Supermates podcast and the Power Records podcast. He says, uh, gr- and, and I'm reading Rob's bit, he says, uh, great use of the Chowda stinger there, even though Shag will groan about the <laughs> Simpsons reference. You're absolutely right, and it's even more painful for me that I actually read this comment from Chris. Okay. Uh, I need to learn the differences in my colors, huh, Rob? Then we heard from Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock's Toy Box, and he says, shame on you, Rob, for your callous dismissal of Doctor Who fans everywhere. I completely agree, Mark. I don't know what he's talking about. How was I dismissive of Doctor Who fans? Dude, we recorded that back in June. You don't even remember what you ate for breakfast yesterday. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I said. He said something disparaging about Doctor Who fans. I don't think I I did. I'm sure you did. did. I feel completely confident you did. In fact, I feel like you said something this morning about it. During our pillow talk. Darren Sutherland from uh, Warlord World Trigger Talk and Xenozoic Xenophiles. He says, like Rob, I always like the scavenger. That's that's two. As a villain, and thought Dan Abnett handled the character well, and like both of you, I really like the Delusion. Hope to see more of them. I felt that was the perfect example of what Dan Abnett talked about in Rob's interview. Even though we've seen characters like this in the past, he took the opportunity to name them, thus adding them to Aquaman's rogues gallery. I'm looking forward to the big storyline he's got coming up with the human flying fish. Um, and then Darren went on to write, and, and like Shag, I've been very happy to see the classic Firestorm issues added to Comicsology. It'll be a treat to read along when you go back and cover those issues. By the way, so in, in addition to the Comicsology thing, bit of a landmark this week, uh, just this week. They published the final issues of the Fury Firestorm run, issues number 99 and 100. So all 100 issues are available in Comicsology. The only problem is, at least as of this recording, um, annual number five is not out there, which may seem like a minor thing. Like, that's an annual, whatever. That's actually where they made the big change to the blank slate version of Firestorm. It's like you read these three or four issues leading up to it, and that's the big moment, and it's not there. And when you come back to issue 65, it's like, oh, Firestorm is a completely different character now, and I don't know how he got there. So hopefully, I, we've already written, a few of us have written to Comicsology asking them to please do annual number five, and uh, we're not sure if that's going to happen or not. Hmm. Uh, unexpected comment of the month goes to a guy named Bill, who just said, only care about Black Mana. We'll drop this Aquaman book when his arc is over. Huh. <laughs> that's... That's, That's very interesting. Well, very interesting. I guess it's good news for him that this Black Mana stuff still going on. Yes, <laughs> so he's probably reading Suicide Squad because Black Mana is in that book. So that's interesting that that someone loves a Aquaman villain but not Aquaman. That's <laughs> quite quite a, quite interesting, Bill. Um, uh, there means there's probably like an Ocean Master guy out there. Maybe so. his name's Ted. There's a scavenger guy too, probably somewhere. Else. Yeah. Uh, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl says, "I can never hear Ronnie and the Professor." Without thinking Nanny and the Professor. Ask your parents. You know, Martin, I'm the same way. I never watched that show, but I'm aware of it. And every time Shag says Ronnie and the Professor, that's what I hear is Nanny and the Professor. It's very strange. What the hell is Nanny and the Professor? It's an old 60s sitcom. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you said Ozzy and Harriet, I'm all over it. But Nanny and the Professor. It was I, not a big, you know, it's, yeah, it's not. What apparently, it didn't do run, re, apparently didn't do reruns in the 80s. So. I guess not. 
then we move on to comments from Fire and Water Podcast, episode number 170, which covered Aquaman's number one through three and Legends of Tomorrow number five. We heard from our buddy Jose Rivera who said, I listened to the latest review episode for Aquaman and I loved it. I credit this show for getting me back to buy not only Aquaman Rebirth issue, but also the first few issues. I initially rolled my eyes that Black Man was the villain. Boy, me too, buddy. But I love the fight and the resolution in the second issue. So that means if, if you follow these thread of comments, Jose at the top of the show said he was thinking about buying Rebirth, and now he's in it. Awesome. Yeah. Welcome. You're welcome, DC. Uh, pre- <laughs> President of the Fire and Water AV Club, Chuck Coletta, says, Thanks for another <laughs> fine episode, guys. I've been enjoying both the current Firestorm and Aquaman runs of late, and nice to hear you. it's nice to hear your views. I hope DC will produce a second volume of Legends of Tomorrow and maybe highlight some other less-seen characters. I'm also looking forward to Season 2 of the TV series, especially since several episodes are going to be set in World War II with the JSA. And he provided a, a link there. He's always doing that. He always finds like audio-visual stuff to accompany his comments. Chuck is very good about that stuff. Awesome. Uh, we got a comment from Sonatron. Is my, oh, is my, Centaurin. Oh, Centaurin. Okay. I thought it's it was a my, Doctor Who reference. Oh, uh, he's my favorite Transformer, I was going to say. He says, uh, <laughs> of course, I don't have one of those. He says, well, I meant to add the following from an article in support of Rob, but my son distracted me, then life got in the way for a bit. The 25 most annoying business phrases managers use. Four, the 30,000-foot view. Though not only use or misuse of this phrase, the 30,000-foot view is often uttered by pompous managers who believe they see the big picture that the rest of us are somehow missing. Get it? Okay. You want us to believe you're considering every outcome of a particular decision. The origin of this phrase – I'm reading the whole comment – which is meant to describe the view of a commercial airplane flying at 30,000 feet have become so misunderstood that we often hear our colleagues refer to everything from the 5,000-foot view to the 100,000-foot view, clearly different views. The SD manager replacement phrase leaders should use the big picture. We also know this is also cliched, but at least everyone will understand the meaning. (laughs) Thank you, Sunderland. Thank you, um, Dillweed. <laughs> now, if you go back and read his previous comment, he says, okay, in defense of shag. From the Cambridge English Dictionary, 10,000-foot view is a description of or view of a situation or problem that provides very general information but no details. Oh, oh. So really he was standing up for both of us. And for the record, 10,000-foot view works for me because when I leapt out of an airplane to go skydiving, we leapt at about 12,000-ish, you know, 10,000-ish feet. So I have actually seen the world at that view with my naked eye, and uh, I'm okay with saying that. By the fact that you cracked your butt bone doing it, I would say that was one of your dumber decisions, by the way. I did not crack my butt bone, sir. I only bruised it. <laughs> and for the record, I am still pissed at you that the end of the episode that was released that week <laughs> – as you doing an audition tape for Michael Bailey in case I die. In fact, at the end, you said, thanks for the audition. We'll talk about it more at the funeral. Oh, my gosh. If I had really died, you would have felt horrible, sir. It would have been so funny if I had that. Oh, my God. I hate you so much. We heard from uh, our buddy Lucien Dessar. He goes, I really like this new volume of Aquaman, even better than the Jeff Johns run. Wow. Dan Ebna is definitely showing and not telling the story, which keeps the story and plot moving. And then uh, if you remember anything about Lucien Dessar and his history on the show, he signs it with still selling sharks from a bucket on the Q train. <laughs> new York's a weird place. What can we tell you? Uh, Chuck Coletta is back. He says, uh, it appears we have another Aquaman-type hitting movie screens. Channing Tatum will play a merman in Disney's Splash remake. The original 1984 Ron Howard film starred Tom Hanks. I guess a Turner and Hooch remake, or was it Tango and Cash remake, is inevitable. Oh, goodness. 
I like Splash. I saw that movie when I was like a kid. So you know, I don't know. If, I don't think it needs a remake, but you know, who am I to say? They're not going to do much better than that. Probably. And um, how how does Splash get a remake, and yet Gilligan's Island hasn't yet? That's you know, and that, that's interesting that they haven't dusted that off. You would think that that would be a no brainer to do. It's got it. Well, it's yeah. Sidney Newman. Is that his name? Um, the creator. Sydney, I don't know if I'm getting that. Sherwood right. Schwartz. That's it. Okay, I was nowhere close. Okay, he only died in relatively recently. Yeah, I'd he say. lived to be like 98 or some. Yeah. So he may have actually held on to those rights for a long time and prevented that from happening. I suppose. Yep. I'm just gonna say right there. If they ever did Gilligan's Island movie, Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine as the house. That's my idea. So okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris. <laughs> Chris. Chris Franklin. Uh, Where does the professor get those wonderful toys? That'd be awesome. Yeah. So Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast, of course, right here on the network, he says, you use the detective chimp stinger. Is this a new closing tag? I hope so. That was my <laughs> wah, wah, wah thing. <laughs> Is you doing Bobo, yeah. Yeah. Both, com- both comics sound very interesting. Actually doing something new with the age-old Aquaman Manta feud is a nice t- is a nice touch, and adding new, possibly old villains of the mix to freshen things up sounds like a win-win. Character subplots in the Firestorm series? Are those even allowed anymore? I thought those were outlawed by the TPB convention of 2000. Great show as always, fellas, Chris. Love that. Absolutely love it. Uh, then we got a comment from someone who just identified themselves as Robin. I've done a little poking. I, I think this might be, but I'm not entirely sure. This may be Dead Robin from the Pulp to Pixel podcast, but I can't verify that. Anyway, Robin wrote in to say, I've said this before in discussions with friends on my Twitter page. I like Aquaman's character in Rebirth because I can relate to him not belonging in neither the surface world or Atlantis. I like how they're showcasing him in the... Um, I'm sorry, they're showcasing that in the way that surface dwellers interact with them. I feel this is relevant social commentary about race and ethnicity and the perception people have of someone versus how that person identifies, whether racially, ethnically, or culturally. You know what? That's really interesting. There's a lot of deep stuff going on here with Aquaman and the way he connects and interacts with the rest of the world and the way they interact with him. And whether Dan Abnett's hitting on that purposefully, you know, at a subtle level or whether it's just happening on its own, it's, it's there and it's interesting. And, um, especially those issues in Washington, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Now moving on to, uh, feedback from fire and water podcast, number one seventy six. And by the way, we should have mentioned, we're just picking and choosing certain comments. We're not calling reading all of them because we've got pages and pages and pages, uh, which again, you guys are awesome with the amount of feedback you guys leave. You're the single, greatest podcast listening community in the world and we sincerely appreciate every comment so we try to at least name check everyone as we go through this so now we're on to fire and water podcast number 176 which is where we cover aquaman number four through six and legends of tomorrow number six yes we do appreciate every comment but we're definitely skipping over gutierrez so anyway ryan daly says i can't explain it but something in your guys chemistry this episode just worked for me more like this please (laughs) And this is the episode where Rob and I actually recorded separately <laughs> because of the trial. We couldn't be in the same recording studio together. And so I would record my bits and Rob recorded his bits. And we got all kinds of comments about people saying how much they love the chemistry in this episode. Considering what a contrived uh, idea it was, I thought it actually came off fairly well. So. It was that or no episode that week. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Ange uh, is back. He says, great chemistry this episode. <laughs> this is. These, this is the only issue I bought of the series and like the resolution of the character subplots. Jason taking the high road and Ronnie staying true to his school were both nice endings, hearkening to a less cynical time. But the winner here was the Sugar and Spike story with lots of Legion and Supergirl. Just perfect. Yes, it was. That was Sugar and Spike. So good. Uh, referring to this episode, Chris Franklin just simply says, we're now in the Sonny and Cher season after the divorce. <laughs> 
Well, all right, fine. We'll 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 refer to David A. Gutierrez. His quote was henceforth known as the Two Christmases episode. <laughs> David, can you come into the living room and sit down, please? We uh, need to have <laughs> now, finally, moving on. So we finished all the review episodes. We do want to address the comments from last episode, which was issue 170, or episode 177, which is our big return episode after two months apart, which was why we love Aquaman and Firestorm. And we're going to hit your comments from the website. And uh, let Rob take it away. Darren Ruth Sutherland says, so happy to hear the plan to move forward. Ruth and I will definitely be there all three days. Heroes is a fantastic convention, the perfect size, always tons of great guests, family-friendly activities for kids. That's good for you, Shaq. Everything about it is fabulous. <laughs> Plus, Ron Randall is tentatively scheduled to attend next year, which will, make, which will be great for Trekker Talk. We look forward to seeing lots of nuclear subs there. Awesome. Yeah, by the way, uh, tickets are on sale right now, folks. Wow, so you can, already? Yep. You, you can buy well, you can buy the three-day pass online, which is only $40. That's a hell of a cheap price. So you can buy it for $40. You get a three-day pass for the convention. If you want just a one-day pass, which run around $20, uh, you're going to have to wait. I think you have to buy those at the door, actually. And also, if you are going to bring your kids, um, or Rob, you know, your girlfriend of underage or whatever, but uh, kids... <laughs> 12 and under get in free. So that's something to think about as well. Now, Keechee Baker wrote back in response because uh, he said, I've never been to a con before, so I really need to get a primer. So the, the Sutherlands have offered to give a primer to folks. Again, if you missed last episode, what we're talking about here is trying to get as many nuclear subs or fellow podcasters or just friends together at the Heroes Con convention next June to June 2017 in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm committed to be there. Several other people are committed. You just heard Darren and Ruth Sutherland are committed. Keechee Baker is committed to be there, and several other people will be as well. I think we're going to have an awesome time, and I hope you guys can make it as well. Well, not David Ace Gutierrez, but everyone else would be awesome to have there. Then, uh, in fact, Darren and Ruth did give some information here. It's sort of like that primer. They talked about hotels are open for reservations, um, so watch for the convention rates. They said that when you're there, if you're worried about eating, there's lots of fast food restaurants inside the convention center and several nicer restaurants within walking distance. So it's absolutely perfect. All right. Interesting. This will be very interesting to see if we can pull that together next year. I think it's going to be fun. And what I'd like to do is get all the guys from the network, all of us that can make it there, and pack us into one room and just have a big snore fest all night long. I think that would be awesome. I don't snore, by the way. Uh, uh, Paul Hicks. Let me tell you, you know, talk about us getting older. I'll tell you my adventures in CPAC machines sometime later. Oh. Are you like in the big iron lung like that Batman villain? Um, not thing? yet, uh, but I'm getting there. I'm, I'm on my third mask style, and uh, it's getting closer and closer to me just being in the uh, cryogenic chamber that uh, Beef Eater had to be in in the first episode of Misfits of Science. <laughs> that, wow, that went over my I'm assuming, and see, now I'm, we're just overdoing this, but I'm assuming, do you talk like Bane when you're in the thing and Dark Knight Rises? <laughs> I absolutely do. Um, anyway, Paul Hicks uh, says, this episode felt like an God. event. You both have a good cause to celebrate the success of the network you've built <gasps> and the way you've inspired so many others to pick a comic they love and podcast about it. Bravo. <laughs> that was so bad. That was so very, very awful. <laughs> uh, I'm, la- I'm laughing in pity. Uh, okay, we heard from Jacob Edwards who says, I go to Heroes every year. Looking forward to meeting up with everyone. Awesome. Another nuclear sub. Fantastic. 
Uh, okay, Ange says, I also agree that there there was an event feel to this episode. Glad to have you guys together again for the first time. There was a lot for me to all over listening to this, thinking about my own character, Supergirl, and how she has grown in popularity over the last couple of years. So odd to think how Firestorm, Aquaman, and her are all in the public consciousness these days. And the idea that suddenly websites and podcasts sprout out of thin air with experts was an interesting one for me to deal. I was thrilled that there were people who discovered how great Supergirl is. But I was also thinking, where have you been? And sometimes thinking... What are you? What you are saying is wrong, and so it also saddens me to think about the end of Firestorm fan. I guess this is another sign of the end of print media. My site is eight years old. That seems to be the time these things get retired. Anyway, congrats to both. Congrats to both for longevity, expertise, and pulling together this feed. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. But again, just for clarification, it's only the blog that I'm going to be stopping putting stuff on. I'll still be on Facebook. I'll still be on Twitter as Firestorm Fan. We'll still be doing the show. So Firestorm Fan's not going away. It's just not going to be doing a lot on the blog. And for those of you who are lamenting the ending of the blog, clearly you haven't been there in a year because pretty much the only thing I've posted are these episodes. So um, <laughs> thanks for your support. But uh, anyway, uh, and one more thing I want to say too. You know, last episode, Rob and I spent some time covering, uh, doing that meme, three fictional characters that represent and where we would name three characters that represent sort of the Firestorm, Aquaman, Mera, you know, those sort of things. And I guess really I should be more specific and say I played and Rob watched me. But anyway. I did like one uh, and a half characters. I invited everyone at home to join in and do it, and I just want to say thank you to all of you that participated and listed those three fictional characters, and I want to thank everyone by name. Okay, I'm done. Rob, <laughs> go ahead. Your turn. Oh, actually, it's my turn to read Chris Franklin, isn't it? So Chris Franklin wrote in to say, this episode felt like one of those great refresh issues of a comic where after fill-ins, good, good ones, mind you, the regular creative team is recharged and sets off on another great run. <laughs> Speaking of fill-ins, like, we need to do one episode where it opens with you and I reminiscing about an old episode, and then we just fly back and play an old show. Hey, Rob, remember that time we <laughs> talked about the superpowers action figures? And we, we, even <laughs> play, yeah, they, right, we even play that music, yeah. We have to do that. We absolutely have to do that. The dreaded Deadline Doom episode. Uh, Chris also says, both Firestorm and Aquaman have come a long way, and I know you guys would never admit it, but I can't help but think you two flying your flags gave them at least a slight boost in that direction. Yeah, you're right, Chris. I'm not going to admit that. I'm not going to think that even for a second, but I'd love to. I mean, you know, I feel like I, I feel like I carried the standard for a while, certainly, but I don't know that uh, we played a role in bringing them back. Right. The, re- the reason I, I never cop to it uh, is because I have known too many people at Comic-Cons who are like – like cosplay as Aquaman and you mentioned I people either I or other people have mentioned the Aquaman shrine and they've never heard of it. And I'm Absolutely. like I'm like, wait a minute, you love Aquaman enough to cosplay as him and you've never heard of my site. Maybe you don't maybe you don't read it, but you've never even heard of it. So that tells me just how big, you know, relatively the world is out there and the shrine is such a tiny part of it that yeah, I just feel weird about taking any sort of credit. Well, the, the irony is, you know those people who cosplayed the character, you know they were doing Google image searches for the character, and probably the vast majority of those pictures came from your site. I know, like, whenever I Google a, a Firestorm image and I look for it, and you look at all the images on Google Images, like, 50% of them are on FirestormFan.com. I'm like, oh, well, look, I, I didn't even know I had that on my site. Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. You know, it's kind of funny. That reminds me of a, a little bit of a, a tangent, but, like, I needed... A pass- Good, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go run to the store. I'll be back. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I needed a passage from uh, the Razor's Edge, my favorite book, and I needed it like uh, on my computer. And I didn't. I don't have a working scanner anymore, so I tried to find the book 
online that page because I, I needed like three sentences just to be mm-hmm. able to copy and paste. And I found the book as a torrent. And I'm like, all right, I own the book like 20 times over, but I can't scan it. So I'm like, I don't have any problem about downloading the torrent. So I downloaded the torrent of the book, and the cover they used for the yeah. torrent is a cover I designed for my website. <gasps> I'm no like, that's way. funny. I'm like, they're using my cover on the torrent for this book. Like, it's a real cover. I just did it for fun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's like, really wow, fascinating. It yeah, it's very strange. Uh, anyway, let's get back to the feedback. Michael Wagner says, my first comic with Aquaman and Firestorm was Justice League of America number 203. Such wow. a great first page. I thought they were like best friends when I read that. That's a great that, storyline. That's the Royal Flush Gang thing. And it opens with Aquaman and Firestorm. Yeah, it opens with them out in the sea and Aquaman sort of like trying to school Firestorm on not being quite such a hothead. So. Yep. And we did a crossover actually many years ago before we started pod- – or either before podcasting or right after we started podcasting where – we're like defending Aquaman and Firestorm's position about that issue. That's right. It was before. Yeah, that was before yeah. we started the show. Yeah. And I made it this whole funny subplot about how Firestorm was really just interested in Mara. But anyway, um, kind of shows the path I was on already, I guess. Huh? Then we heard from Gene Hendricks, our buddy who does the Hammer Strikes podcast and blog, the Legend of Superheroes, Quantum Cast, and more on Two True Freaks. Now, um, last issue when we were doing, again, the three fictional characters, I compared Aquaman to King Arthur. And I made apologies to uh, Gene. I'll read his comment and I'll, I'll comment afterwards. He goes, okay, why would I send you a nasty letter for comparing Aquaman to King Arthur, Shag? I would have chosen that comparison as well, especially when you consider the doomed kingship that is frequently portrayed in the comics for Aquaman. I do like how I am now the go-to for King Arthur stuff, though even though it's a, if it's an offhanded mention. Now, uh, my commentary on that is either I mumbled what I said or Rob cut it because he just hates me. Um, what I was actually apologizing to Eugene was because I said that using uh, King Arthur, and then I said, oh, oh, I mean the fictional version, not the the, the real one from uh, – or I, basically I said the mythical version of King Arthur. And, I, and basically I was afraid that my statement indicated that King Arthur wasn't real. It was only mythical, and so I was immediately backtracking because I didn't want to get a scathing letter from you talking about the true history of Britain and how there was a King Arthur and all this stuff. That's what I figured I was going to get. So, anyway. All right. Alexander Osias from the Armchair Gamer blog, he says, Well, hello. It's great to have the two-man band back together. Since both of you did this reunited episode with a review and update on why you love these characters so much, i like to propose something else, perhaps an end of year or next year's anniversary of the podcast, something to aid the next generation of creators for a Firestorm and Aquaman. What I mean is an exploration of the character elements and storylines from the beginning of each character to present that resonate, that are part of what makes each character work. Also, perhaps some roads not traveled that might shed a few, might shed a new light on the character and some roads best left untrodden. Just a suggestion, of course, you two are the experts. That sounds like a lot of work, Alexander, so I'm already really <laughs> against that. <laughs> it's really a cool idea. It's a great uh, idea. Does You can't make a good point. It does sound like a lot of work. Hmm. <laughs> it really uh, does. <laughs> we will take it under advisement. Let's put it that way. Have you not listened <laughs> to my who's who participations, Alexander? <laughs> it's like, Rob, did you even read this entry? No. <laughs> I, I did in 1987. So. <laughs> exactly. All right, we heard from our buddy Jeff R., who wrote, So, origin story time. I've never been an Aquaman fan at all. To be honest, I got the Adventure Comics issues for Starman, tolerated Plastic Man, and often didn't even read the Aquaman stories. <laughs> I sad, like sad, sad life. 
This is the best ever. Uh, later on, really liked the Atlantis Chronicles and followed Peter David's run as a Peter David fan rather than an Aquaman fan. Same with Kurt Busiak later. And I think that this is because Aquaman was just plain broken as a character during my formative comic reading years. Not just because the Super Friends enforced lameness thing, but more because of the Black Mana stuff. This is a superhero who had his arch-villain literally kill his infant son, a character whose wife was literally driven insane with grief, and he's running around capturing whale poachers and smugglers. At this point in his career, he was a complete failure as a father, husband, and monarch. And don't get me wrong, that's a very powerful place to put a character, a place that could be... Um, I lost my place here. Uh, a place that could be the basis for some great storytelling, but nobody writing the character was very interested in doing anything other than ordinary superheroics, and that just won't work with the character in that state. And even as we got more distance from these events, I still had the problem that, as far as I was concerned, the Aquaman Mara relationship had com gone completely toxic, and the authors who wanted to push that uh, as one of the true pairing, it, I'm sorry, and the authors wanted to push that as one true pairing kind of thing seemed completely off. Really, Aquaman should have gotten a complete reboot in the crisis and undid the dead baby problem entirely. And it wasn't until the New 52 that we could have a workable version of the character, which I'm following in trades and enjoying. Before that, I'd say that the only story where I genuinely liked Aquaman as a character would be in the Justice League uh, annual where he disbanded the League. Whoa! I, Jeff R., I love you, man. Anyway, and then he says, on the other hand, I've just about, uh, I'm sorry, I've just about always been a Firestorm fan. This guy's really, you know, he seems like a smart guy. Uh, he says, I just barely missed the DC explosion, so my introduction to the character was in DC Comics Presents. The two appearances there and then in Justice League days, while I was willing to buy adventure comics for two-thirds of stories, I bounced hard off the flash those days and couldn't justify paying uh, out 60 cents a month just for eight pages of Firestorm. Uh, the Fury of Firestorm was the first comic that I collected starting with issue number one and never considered dropping it once. Apart from that one time Alan Moore wrote Firestorm, which you guys could totally do an episode about sometime, my favorite story has to be the early Ostrander one that set up the blank slate firestorm with the Firehawk and the Firehawk Tokamak story running a close third. Wow. So he's talking about an issue of Swamp Thing right. where Alan Moore actually wrote Firestorm. <laughs> the only time he ever wrote Aquaman either. Is it really? Yeah. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Martin Gray says, uh, my favorite Aquaman runs are the Michelini, Dematius, McLaughlin, Pfeiffer, Arcudi, Jurgens, Larson, Parker, and Abnet Eris, which is like most of them. Wow. Uh, I'm a big fan of Peter David, but not on Aquaman. Wish I could get to Heroes Con. It's also my birthday on the 18th. Hmm, cheap flights. Uh, well done on maintaining the Firestorm fan blog for so many years, Shag. Congratulations on a decade of Aquaman Shrine, Rob. Well done on the fifth anniversary of the Fine Water Podcast, boys. Great work on Secret Origins, Ryan. May I stop now? Actually, I don't want to stop. Thanks for all the great entertainment. The network is something special. Thank you, Martin. Oh, that's very nice. I appreciate that. He was probably drunk when he wrote that. Um, then we heard from Jay Jones uh, from the Splitting Atoms blog, the Silver and Gold podcast, and Wild Pod, a wild dog podcast. He wrote, Charlotte uh, for Heroes Con might be extremely doable for me and my son Vance and probably Roy Cleary. So we might get the whole Silver and Gold podcast gang at this event. That would be awesome. Um, so, folks, and we come to the end here, and it is time to give out a Steam Award. A Steam Award, it goes to someone that has gone above and beyond in the realm of either Firestorm or Aquaman or the network or something we just like. And uh, it is the combination of fire and water together, which provides steam. And this award goes to 
uh, a name you may not be familiar with. His name is Luke Dobb. Uh, this gentleman from Dobb Creative. I've never heard of this guy. I don't know about you, Rob. But um, actually, he was, last the, uh, play, he was the playmate for Playgirl, the centerfold, a couple of months ago. So, oh, was I think you know it's the hair he gets at all those jobs. <laughs> anyway, actually, to be honest, folks, I actually got a chance to hang out with Luke Dobb recently uh, in Indiana. He and I got together with Ben Avery and had an awesome time. It was so cool to meet Luke face to face. Were girls chasing him like a hard day's night? Uh, yeah, actually, that's kind of funny. That's how he got there. Uh, so he was running, you know, a big group behind him, and he ducked into the comic book store, and the girls never thought to look in there. So, <laughs> it's like um, so anyway, I last episode when we did again these three characters that represent our heroes, I said Firestorm is perfectly represented by Doc Brown and Marty McFly, you know, with Professor Stein and Ronnie Raymond, and I challenged Luke to draw a mashup of Firestorm and the Back to the Future gang. And uh, Luke took the challenge and did an amazing job. He's got the, it, it's the pose from the poster, you know, where where Marty has his has his foot up in the DeLorean and he's checking his watch and he's lifting his sunglasses up, you know, that famous pose. Here it's Firestorm. He's looking at his wrist though, and he's got his hand up there to his forehead. He's got his foot up, and the Firestorm normally, you know, the three circles on his chest are actually done differently to be the flux capacitor. That's my favorite detail of this piece. <laughs> it's so good. And then uh, the floating head in a blue pencil is Doc Brown, but he's got that giant mind-reading helmet from when he first meets Marty in 1955. This is awesome! This will definitely be on the gallery post uh, page. Uh, now, oh my, you know what I just noticed? I never know. Oh my god! His sleeves! They're plaid! He's got plaid sleeves! Oh my gosh. This is the coolest thing ever, Rob. I am so in love with this. And he's got the little flames on the ground and everything. So, Luke, you did an exceptional job here. You really knocked this one out of the park, uh, and I absolutely love it. So thank you so much. It is it is a real joy for me. So, Rob, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Why don't you tell people at home where they can leave their comments uh, to make sure they get read right on the show? Over on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. There you will find all... All of the shows on our network, all of our we got a bunch of new shows coming out and a bunch of really great ones, so get over there and leave your comments there. And for those of you who are a little worried with the new shows coming out, being like, oh my gosh, I can't handle any more, they're all filling in slots for other shows. I, I think it's right. fair to say we're not actually adding any more shows a week at this point. Right. I mean, that that's bound to happen sooner or later. But, like, you know, uh, it's pod, it's midnight. The podcasting hour is happening the same days where Super Secret Origins used to happen, that kind right. of thing. Treasury casts will be uh, at the times when uh, Pod Dylan isn't. So right, stuff like exactly. That. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if you want to visit my friend Rob, and I use the term loosely, you can head over to AquamanShrine.net where you can see all kinds of aquity goodness. I guess that's the thing. Uh, you can also find him on Facebook and Twitter under Aquaman Shrine. You can find me as Firestorm Fan on both Facebook and Twitter and here. And uh, other than that, as well as a lot of other places you can find us, folks. But just mainly we're down at the Circle K hanging out, hanging on a Saturday night by choice. By choice, so, man. Totally by choice. By choice. So until next time, fan the flame. Ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in air. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah. Hey, everybody. 
I'm here today to show you how to tie a slip knot. So the process is really simple and I will walk you through it in a step-by-step -step manner. The first thing that you are going to do is you are going to take the end of the rope and you are going to wrap it around your two fingers. So as you can see, I have the end of the rope underneath the 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 running the middle portion of the rope so the end is underneath the middle now you are going to bring the end up and over the middle and just keep it facing down and with your two fingers you are going to reach through that little uh, loop that you created and you are going to grab the middle portion of the rope and pull it through the loop while holding the end just like that and I sort of held on to the end and the middle portion just like that and that's basically it that is how you create sorry that is how you tie a slip knot and you can um, sort of test it out if you want just by uh, maneuvering it like that so you can loosen it and you can also tighten it once again you can loosen it just like that and also tighten it and that's pretty that's pretty much it it is a really really simple knot to tie and it is definitely a very useful knot and the process for tying a slip knot is definitely easy and if you follow the steps in this video you will be good to go and that's all I have for you today thanks for watching Chick, chick, why? What, what brick? 